Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Big Brain Small World Podcast. Today, I have my guest speaker, Daniel, who is normally the host of the podcast. The Big Brain Small World Podcast. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming to help me out with this project today. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing good. Yeah? Yeah. What's been going on in this stage of life for you? Not much. Yeah? Big chilling. Big chilling. Enjoying big chilling. So the filmmaking has kind of ramped down a little bit. I am taking a hiatus. A sabbatical? Well, I guess I should give some background on film. I started a serious, like, film is going to be my main goal nine years ago, or is going to be ten years ago. And from the moment that that started, nothing was allowed to take any priority over that. Anything, even other things that I wanted to do. So there were other things that I wanted to put time and attention into. But when you're trying to do something as a profession, nobody's helping you, like you're doing everything on your own. There's really, you don't have the luxury of taking a break or taking time off because it's like the people you're working with, the people you're learning with, the projects that you're doing, they start and stop with you. So there was no off season where it was possible to just do something else. My last project that I'm still editing, although I've taken a break from it, was like the culmination of a long, long years of work to be able to do something like that. So when I finally basically finished the production process of that and went into post-production, I sort of had this revelatory moments of, I'm done with this process of learning how to do this thing, which took about 10 years to really basically become confident in it. And StarCraft has always been something that I've spent a lot of time in. And it's kind of been like this side obsession that's, you know, swiped four or five hours of my time every once in a while. And, you know, it would just be like, when I have a free night, it would just <laughs> suck me into it. Yeah. But I've always been interested in actually um, mastering it because it is a profound challenge both from a, just a skill standpoint but also from an intellectual standpoint. So I finally was given the free time by life to do that and so that is what I've decided to spend my time doing. So for those listening who are sort of unaware, StarCraft is um, a game of strategy that's been around for a pretty significant amount of time. What has it been the, the, the second one came out. Yeah, the original game came out in like 1999. And then the second game came out in 2010. Right. So it is it is sort of a staple in the gaming community of one of those. Well, how would you describe it? Just, just something that has a pretty significant history as uh, in the competitive realm. It's a real-time strategy game. And... That essentially means that if you think of most traditional strategy games like chess and checkers, it works on the same lines, although StarCraft has an economic component, which those games do not. It works like that, but in real time, so it's not turn-based. So uh, 
basically a real-time strategy game. It's just imagine chess with yeah, turn, no, turn. no turns. Exactly. Yeah. And so StarCraft is sort of the ultimate pinnacle of real-time strategy. There's other games like it, but none of them kind of have the pedigree of StarCraft for a variety of reasons I could explain, but that is that's how you would describe it. It's a real-time strategy game. So we got the opportunity to play some basketball together the other day. And I think at this stage of our lives, basketball is definitely something that has sort of taken a back seat. Um, we are both retired bums, and we uh, self-prescribed retired bums. But um, it's, it's really fun to dust off the shoes and get an opportunity to be competitive. Uh, what, what, was, uh, what is your experience like as a bodybuilder coming and playing basketball for these short periods of time, but balancing the competitive spirit that you have? You know, this is something that I didn't actually appreciate until recently uh, when it comes to basketball because I still will play basketball quite often by myself just working on moves and stuff. Like, as far as, like, a skill progression standpoint, I am at the best I have ever been because when I play basketball for cardio or for whatever – I actually practice a skill that I'm progressing from. So every single year, it's it's more of a an intellectual challenge on how to improve your moves and like the footwork of it and the timing of it and all this kind of stuff. So I don't know if I've ever told you this specifically, but that's actually the reason why I fell in love with basketball. I assume that that's what everybody liked to do. So like for when I got into it, when I was like nine or 10, the whole appeal of it was the, you actually spend your whole summer working on all these moves, combos, you watch basketball, you study the game, and then you go on to a team and then you kind of develop a strategy on how you're going to win and then you go and do it. Most people that I've played with recently are people that were in various programs. So they, the only practice or skill work that they were really doing was happening when, you know, they're at practice and they're being told to do certain drills and whatever. The super dedicated ones would be the ones that would after practice or before practice would go do that. But what was funny is that I was the person that my whole enjoyment of it was the, the training. And then the playing was just kind of like showcasing what you were training. So from, from to answer your question... Uh, nothing for me has actually really changed from like what I actually gained from enjoyment of the game. Although I have, I don't play on competitive teams anymore, but I still find great satisfaction in the improvement process of the game. And so for that, like it's, you know, it's something that I'm always going to do, but like you said, it's really hard to, you know, when you learn a bunch of new moves and you know that they're effective and you're like, man, I want to find some, some people to use these on. It is, it is extremely difficult to not want to go find a place to play. The one thing that is a big difference between you and I in the basketball world is that you put this big emphasis on the, the skill training and the cerebral side of things, which I certainly do as well. But I've had a lot more opportunities to continue to play um, team basketball and the skill side of things I would say that it is not it is not a far stretch to say that from from a skill perspective you are a much more talented basketball player you're a much more skilled basketball player 
But for me, I have greater success in a team game setting. And the reason that is is because my skills are more... They're in, molded to that style. Of yeah, it, it's more ineffable. It's not yeah. necessarily, you know, my, my ability to dribble, my ability to shoot. My, uh, my skill is contextual. And so it, it's how I move within an offense. It's how I move off ball, the, the way I set a back screen and my timing and stuff. Um, but there's nothing particularly special that, that, that I do that makes me a good basketball player. I actually want to ask you a question because, as I said before, I went on that whole thing. I didn't actually appreciate the difference in, the, in my approach to the game versus your approach to the game and, and most people's approach to the game. Most of the time on any given team, you're usually going to have one or two dudes who are going to be the person that has all the, you know, they're going to have a bag. And the way that that works in a strategic sense is if you were to put somebody like me on a team and we were trying to win games with what you were just saying, how would you employ my skill set and what I can do? in a setting with a team where it would actually be made to be effective. Because I've found it very difficult. I can play team basketball. I understand how it works and, and whatever. But it often forces me to limit what I actually want to do. Because for what my real skill, most, most of what I've trained to do is look at a dude straight in the face, look at their, their feet and their hips and how they move and whatever, figure out one or two moves that can get them out of my way and figure out what shot. You know, it's, it's not... Once you figure out how it works and you have all the different combos and combinations and whatever, if you can string together three or four different moves at that point, it's you're pretty much unguardable if you have any form of athleticism or any form of size or height. If you if you can I if you can string together about three or four moves and they're effective, you can pick a shot and you can actually read um, how somebody moves. You can do that, but how would you actually? I guess, fit that into a, a team, somebody who just, their, their only job is just to pick somebody and say, all right, I'm going to get a bucket here. That's, it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing on the court. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, you answered a big chunk of that there where your primary um, skills are to be like the guy, right? Because mm -hmm. you practice skills of like shot making and uh, something you didn't mention is that you are great at reading the floor and, and playmaking and passing for other people. And so you are kind of a Steve Nash, a Chris Paul, right? But the, the issue comes in that when you play in a context with a lot of good players who practice a lot, it is hard to justify being the guy when there's lots of other the guys who, who have the same skill sets, but potentially, uh, even though they don't fulfill the same role that you do, they do certain things better. And so you end up taking a back seat and, and watering down your yourself as a basketball player and, and condensing it into a certain skill. You become a, a corner three-point shooter or a screen setter. Or, um, and so, uh, like I said, that's, that's kind of a hard thing to do is you either have to put in the, the time requirement to, to justify being the guy. That's one thing that I didn't figure out until I was way, way older was, so another, another part of this, He's like, I can see where you're going. Another part of this that I found very interesting is one of the things that I've come to appreciate about basketball as a game is that, I mean, I haven't played on a competitive team, but I've been around the game my whole life. So it's like I've never not been around basketball players. 
And one of the things that I've, I've realized is that my, I mean, I don't know how competitive you are, but like my competitive nature is basically destroy. I mean, like our goal is to win. That's the only thing that we're trying to do, right? Like why else are we here unless we're trying to win the game? But the thing is on any given team, you can usually only have it. And sometimes it's not even the coach can also be that guy. It can only be a player or a coach or somebody on the team. It might not even be a player or a coach. It could be somebody in an organization or an athletic department who is the dude who is focused on on handling business, basically. Like, they're the guy. They're the one basically telling everybody what to do. If somebody's out of line, they're going to put them in line. That could be a player. It could be a coach. It could be, be a whatever. And I found that that's kind of my instinctive mentality in everything. But it's really difficult if there's another person who's like the best player or the whatever who's used to calling the shots, but they don't really have that. You know, when, when things need to be done, just get them done. When that person's in charge, I usually, there's a lot of friction there because I'm just like, just go deal with the problem. Like, go do this or do that. But if somebody's so used to being in charge, it's really difficult for them to actually accept that somebody's better at that job. I don't know if I'm explaining the point properly, but it's like, let's say that the coach, right, the coach is used to calling the shots, but they're not actually, like, they don't have a killer instinct. The coach doesn't. But then there's a player on the team. They might not even be the top player. They might just be a role player, but they're the one guy who actually has a killer instinct. I've found that the teams that are the best are the ones that actually will allow that person, yeah, whoever it is, to just do their job and let that instinct go rather than the coach saying, Hey, I'm the head coach. And, and so you don't have the authority to say that they actually can basically humble themselves and whatever. So I found it very difficult to be on a lot of teams because nobody has that instinct. And I do, but I'm like not gelling with everybody else. So most people don't want you to, to act that way unless they really trust you and unless they really like you. So it's, it's like, been so hard for me to like go on to teams and like kind of like hold back and be like I really want to say this or do this or tell this person to go do that or like whatever but I like, like I can't <clears throat> you have to sort of suppress the full scope of your competitive instincts just to enjoy playing the game of basketball and just be amicable with other people yeah um you were asking me sort of like where I lie on that spectrum and mm -hmm. I find that in in the realm of basketball I have a desire to be like that, but I find the most success being a tool, being not not like a like a jerk. But <laughs> <laughs> I do that too, but being uh, somebody who uh, has a role and a purpose, and I am actually most effective that way. And I don't get to be the man unless the basketball context is um, the, the the skill level is is a lower basin. Now, I have moments where um, where I can just go get her done, but if contextually speaking, if I'm playing with, with great players, I will serve the most purpose creating for other people off the ball or moving in, into space. And so my current sort of stage of life is, is a recognition that I have lots of other things where I am the guy, whether it's um, my relationship with my girlfriend, my, 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 uh, my academic endeavors, 
right, my artistic endeavors. These are lots of places in my life where I can be the guy. And so that's, that's a big part of the reason why I think I'm going to be stepping down from basketball in the next year is because um, as a role player with, with a really intense competitive instinct, having other avenues where I can be the guy, it hurts to sit on the bench. And yeah. It, it's it's and it's an ego thing. It's a pride thing. But yeah. I've just gotten to a stage of life where I can't feed all of these separate yeah. avenues of of desire, and so I find myself saying, "All right, I'm I'm gonna have to condense here if I'm really gonna give maximum um, effort and quality to to avenues of my life. Some things have to take a backseat." I have a follow-up question to that because I think what you're saying is, is very interesting. I was going to say, I think what I was trying to get at and what I was saying was that there are multiple ways of being the guy in, in a sports context or in anything context. So I think one of the things that people find difficult to understand is that, and specifically in basketball, but I hope people can extrapolate this to other examples. My kind of point was that you might be the top scoring player on the team, but the dude who everybody looks to when the game is flying, when, when, every, when everything's out of control, the, the person that people actually look to might be the six man. Hmm. It might even be the assistant coach. You, I've seen this happen before where like on a, in a basketball team, when things are actually going badly and, and people are looking for a solution, the person they always go to isn't who you would traditionally see as the guy. Right. So you're saying lots of teams have guys whose role function as the rock of the team isn't as where it would traditionally be painted. And so in a lot of contexts, there's a there's a struggle that happens where the person who is would be traditionally be seen as the guy perceived as the guy, like the head coach, the, the top scoring option, whatever, can't let go of the fact that they can't really do the the job of what that is and so that's how a lot of teams actually fall apart not just basketball teams in any context if you're talking about i'll give you an example when i was shooting my short film things were going really badly on the first day and my assistant director rose up i had no idea that this guy could do this but he was way more experienced than me and saved the production basically for those like first couple of days before I could kind of get my head straight and get it back on track. If I had in those moments tried to basically stop him from doing his, what his job was, I would be failing everybody by shoving ego where it didn't belong because it's like, listen, are we, are we trying? And then this is really what you have to come to. And I, I feel like I've gotten a lot better at this as I've gotten older is when you have this instinct to be the guy, nothing wrong with it. You know, everybody has it to some degree. Some people have it stronger than others. I feel you and I specifically have a very strong instinct to want to be the dude most of the time. Ultimately, you, yes, it's great to be able to do that. But at, at the end of the day, it is not worth being the guy and losing. So it's like you have to focus. You have to say, what's more important, being the guy or winning? And you really have to ask yourself that question. Yeah, so that's, I was actually having a conversation with somebody today, with a couple guys, about the um, delegation of responsibility and how difficult that can be when you are the best suited for the task. And that is a hard thing when you're in a leadership position because we've talked about 
um, family businesses that don't survive long term because people have a hard time. They have so much skill and they have a hard time uh, delegating those tasks to other people because if we're going to do a project, I don't want to fail the, the, the customer. And so we're going to do the best version of the product we can do. And that means not letting go of the reins for someone who doesn't know and they don't get learning experience and, and long-term, the, the, the company struggles. And the same sort of thing goes for, um, I've had some conversations about whether I would run for president of the Hoff School of Business here at Corbin University. And I've talked to some of the business professors and the, the current guy who holds the role. That was Chris, who you met the other day during the, the national championship game. And he was talking about how hard it is to be um, somebody who can accomplish all these tasks and bits of communication and scheduling things. And um, he can do that all himself. And in his mind, he can do it as well or better than anyone else on the team. But that's not really effective. And he was saying that the, the previous person who was holding his position was telling him, like, it's not your job to, to do everything. In fact, it's hardly your job to do anything rather than to just create a structure where uh, the team can function on its own. I know exactly what you're talking about. It is extremely difficult to get over this, but my experience with this, I, I mean, film has given me an opportunity to be in a leadership position. Mainly, you know, I got into a very young age having to be in charge of people. And one of the things that I have come to terms with is that in almost any scenario, basically, I am the person who is going to be the expert in absolutely everything most of the time. Now, this, that would sound great, right? You're the expert at everything. This is actually terrible, and it's terrible for a variety of reasons. One, it's that really the reason why it's a problem isn't that, you know, for any reasons you might think, it's that if you do legitimately know everything and you know more than everybody else, you are tempted to micromanage absolutely everything because you literally can do the thing better. And this is, I think this is worse in many respects to thinking you can do things better. The reason why is because when you think you can do things better but you actually can't, unless you have a ginormous ego most of the time, reality is going to come crashing down on you and it's going to say, no, you actually can't do this as well as you think you can. This person's better suited for the task. It's going to bruise you a little bit, but you'll get over it. But when you're actually in charge of a group of people where it's a team environment and people actually need to be assigned roles, but you actually can do any, every individual person's job better than they can, what's going to happen to you mentally, unless you're very experienced with being in this situation, is any opportunity you get to do that person's job, you're going to go do it. And then you're going to see another person's, another person's lacking. So you're going to go do that. And then you're going to go do that. What's happening to you is that you're actually being taken away from what you need to do as the leader. And you're not allowing those people to grow. And you need to actually be able to trust people that they're going to grow in their job. They're going to get better at it. And also, even if they can't do the job, specific job, better than you can. If you aren't doing what you're supposed to do as the leader, 
you going and doing that thing better than them is getting in the way of the whole project. So this is very hard to overcome. Yeah, it took ceiling. a long time to figure that out for me personally. The ceiling or the, the potential of the team or group may actually be lower than if you do delegate and allow for growth to failure. Yeah. yeah, failure and growth to happen. Oh, okay. Now I, I have some very interesting things now. All right. So this is something that um, I have figured out over a long period of time. This is what is. This is what sort of um, I was referring to earlier with these examples about you know the guy not necessarily being the traditional lead role and whatever. Most people think that the leader in a group or of a project or in anything is the guy. So I hope anybody listening to this understands that when we're talking about the guy, we're talking about the person who makes the audible decisions, as in like, they call the shots, they decide, they, they, they are a decision maker. Most people think that that person is the leader, but that's actually not the case. Because what I've found, and I think leadership is a very interesting topic, because a lot of people have a lot of different views on it. Leaders, usually, if they're doing their job properly, aren't actually going to be that person. They're going to be the underlying structure who is guiding the decision maker in the direction that they're supposed to be going. The decision maker is simply the person that tells everybody what to do. And they do have some leadership capacity, but basically, a good leader is somebody who has to stay very, very neutral and objective and just look at the whole situation without really getting personally involved and, and see who is a decision maker, who is a role player, who's a this, and construct the group. And so what happens is when you get a leader that's trying to do that and make decisions, I don't really see how you can possibly do that. So I've had to struggle with that personally because I love being a, in the leadership position. I think I'm pretty good at it, but I also am really good at being the, the guy who can go in and make decisions. But when I tried to do both of those at the same time, don't work. It, it actually, you get in your own way when you do that. So this is, um, there's some controversy regarding where the line is between showing off your own personal ability and facilitating. And I think a great example of this is the career of an NBA player, Steve Nash. And obviously, um, you know who this is very well, but for the listeners, he was um, he was a great NBA player. He won, was it one MVP? Two MVPs. Two MVPs. Two MVPs. Yeah. And he never won a championship, right? Or Dallas. No, that no, was, he Steve, never, that he was ne Jason Kidd. Yeah, he never won a championship. Yeah, so... <clears throat> The question is, Steve Nash was this incredible passer, one of the greatest in the history of the NBA. And um, he also had the ability to score the ball really well. I mean, he was very skilled. And the question was, people always debated, should Steve Nash be scoring the ball more? And um, they wondered, would it open up more opportunities for his teammates if he was actually more aggressive? And I can't necessarily put an answer to that question. The results of his career, I mean, he, he had a great career. He never won a championship, but lots of great players never win a championship. And so you can't, I don't know if I can decisively say that Steve Nash should have scored the ball more. But um, 
this is kind of exactly on point with what we're talking about in that he elevated his teammates so much, but could he have elevated the team more by uh, getting it done himself? Well, there's two avenues I can go down on this. I can go down on this super technical basketball route, or I could go down the, the more spiritual, you know, intellectual route on this. So I'm going to go with a bit of both. And, I, and this comes from playing the position of point guard myself. I, when I first started playing basketball, and I basically figured out what a point guard was supposed to do, your goal is to facilitate the offense of a team. That is your, your stated goal. But when you can also score the ball, it puts you in an interesting conundrum because what if you're the best scorer on the team but your job is to facilitate the team offense? That is a very interesting question. And I would say that obviously the answer that you should reach, and I think with the Steve Nash example, what you saw was, in my opinion, pretty like a very well-balanced approach. And the reason why is because we can get into all sorts of philosophical loops with this, but it's like, was he able to score or was his scoring opening up opportunities for his teammates or was his opening up opportunities for his teammates, making them all super dangerous, give him the ability to score the ball more? Because if you look at him, he wasn't, he wasn't very athletic. Yeah. I mean, he had some good moves and shots and whatever, but this dude was not, you know, winning any track races or anything like that. Right. So you're, the so, you're getting at is so, it might be a two-sided yeah, we, we Yeah, we can go either route with that. What I'm saying is that what you're looking at with somebody like Steve Nash is somebody who understands the game and their role and everybody else around them to such a degree that they can balance that. And I'm going to go to an example where there was an actual, I think Steve Nash as an example is a little bit complicated because he actually did what he was supposed to do extremely well. Let's take Kobe Bryant, for example. There were long periods of time where he was criticized in his career very sharply because he would not pass the ball. And I understand why he wasn't passing the ball. Because remember how we were talking about earlier where you're the best guy for the job? Every time down the court, undoubtedly, during those teams where he was being heavily criticized, there was not an – I don't care how tired he was. I don't care who was guarding him. I don't care double teams, triple teams. If you looked at some of those Lakers teams he was playing on in the mid-2000s, every time you want Kobe shooting the ball. Every time. But what he ultimately discovered was that – objectively, yes, and he was scoring 50, 60 points a game. I mean, he had some crazy numbers. I mean, during those days, he scored 81 in a game. Was he the best option every time down the court? Yes. Michael Jordan had the same thing, where it was like every time down the court, he's the best guy, and he would let you know. They were two guys who would let you know they are the best guy for the job, and, and it's true. But when did they actually start winning championships? When he let go of the reins a little bit. When he, when he lets other people do their jobs and trusted them, even though they weren't going to do as good of a job as him necessarily on each individual given night or play or whatever, when those two guys finally loosened up and allowed their teammates to do what they needed to do, they started winning championships. Yeah, so this is, this is a theme we see consistently across the board with scoring superstars. Um, Michael Jordan, definitely. I mean, he was league-leading scorer, 
um, for a number of years. Unstoppable. Was, there was no guarding him in, in any situation. There's like nothing there. you can do. There's nothing you could do. The the answer to the lack of championships didn't come until he could delegate. Same thing goes for, say, Allen Iverson, another incredibly controversial figure, but dude could score the ball. and Couldn't guard him. Once again, unguardable player. Right, but he didn't find team success until he submitted to his coach and allowed the team process to to yield the best results. Yeah, and so this is one of the things I found when watching The Last Dance. I think it's a perfect example is that Michael Jordan, you could look at him and say that he was the leader of the team, but I think that this is a prime example of what I'm saying. It's the guy versus the leader. If you look at the dynamic of that, I don't know how much you know about Phil Jackson, but I've studied him a lot because I really like his, his philosophy. is incredible towards the game. And basically what he would do is he would figure he would let you figure out at least this is from what I can figure out from my research was that he would let people figure out who they were <laughs> on the team and he would then strategically pit people against each other give them things to do conducting the orchestra of the team and he would and and Kobe said this in a, in an interview that I was recently watching that he would never confront people directly ever never he would always say things indirectly do all this kind of stuff Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, they were the guy. They were the person in practice yelling at people, screaming at people, telling them to go here, go there. You think that that's the leader. That's actually not the leader. That's the decision maker. That's the person who's audibly saying what to do. But underneath that, there needs to be this, this sort of, I guess you could be, you know, the wind that, you know, that's driving the sail. That has to be an incredibly subtle force. And that's the leader. And, and and so there's it's, it's a very interesting dynamic, but most of the time when you see any successful organization over a long period of time, you have that dynamic. It's not just sports. It's in anything. You have this underlying leader who's kind of guiding the whole ship, but not really vocal about it, not really well known about it, not super upfront. And then there's somebody who's like, yo, I'm the person who goes in, we get stuff done, and... N- BS is not being tolerated. Usually you have a good balance of that and it creates a good organization. There's this thing that's been going on around on the internet the last few years, and not to keep beating the basketball thing over the head, but um, Steph Curry, another incredible player, undersized, probably the greatest shooter of all time. And so people have said, well, hypothetically, what happens? Steph, every, if, if Steph were to shoot an open shot, Every single time, it would be better than anyone else ever really shooting a shot, right? And so how can the Warriors justify anyone but him shooting a shot? And and this doesn't really take into example fatigue, obviously, but... They they would ask this question. These are there's there's some like not knowing the the physicality of the sport of basketball that goes into some of this theory crafting, but right, yeah. And so they pose this question: What would happen if the Golden State Warriors? formed a four-person ring around Steph Curry and just gave him the <laughs> ball and let him shoot. <laughs> and, um, incredibly comical. Hilarious picture. But um, again, this comes down to the ceiling of the team is not going to be as high, in my opinion, as if you have a normally functioning basketball team with with roles where people feel valued and accepted and they feel inspired to uh, dedicate themselves to that role. And when they feel valued, they do the things that they probably don't want to do. You know, 
I think this is we can go in another direction with this because, you know, you're saying beating the basketball thing over the head. But, I mean, the thing is, I think basketball and I think sports in general, but basketball really is a very good analogy to life in general. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing and how much everything translates. But the theory crafting thing about the, the four-player ring about around Stephen Curry, one of the things that I find very interesting, and there is a point that I'm going to arrive at with this, when we're talking about these things, you know, one of the things that you can contend with is obviously we're talking about sort of team morale importance to it um, outside of, you know, technical stuff. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that, that it's like, listen, from a technical standpoint, yes, you can make the criticism that it's like, yeah, obviously one player can't win a championship because eventually they're going to get double and triple teamed and fatigued and whatever. And it's like, that's true. But the actual emotional health of a team is so much more important than anything technical that you could describe happening on the basketball court or, or anything like that. When you're looking at a, at a game, like an individual NBA game or basketball game or whatever, you're looking at the culmination of thousands upon thousands of hours that have gone into creating that picture. None of what you're seeing is a randomized product, right? So if, when we're talking about this kind of stuff, when you're talking about letting players find out who they really are, uh, subsuming into their roles, not trying to, to do their own work for them because you can do it better, that's stuff that happens before the final performance. We're not talking about this as in applying to game day, all right, you know, this is happening. When we're talking about the, the process that goes into to accomplishing a team goal, a lot of times people like to criticize the execution. And execution is not this, we're not talking about execution. Execution is like blowing out the candles on a birthday cake. It's the moment of satisfaction. It's the moment where it's like, all right, get it done. And then you do it. But what goes into all of the stuff before that moment arrives is where everything we're talking about is, is way more important. Because I, I think that basketball is a perfect example of this. If you've ever played on a basketball team, it becomes very easy mentally to believe that the outcome of any specific game was decided in that game. Technically, yes. In reality, it was decided by what people did and did not do in all the practices, during the offseason, during the discussions about what was going to be done, how people reacted to certain events emotionally, how stable were their lives, you know, how well were they gelling with their teammates. That's what decided the outcome of the season, not any specific game. And so if you, if you are somebody who looks at the, just the execution day and thinks that that's the outcome, you're going to be completely confused as to how to turn a ship around or how to actually make improvements. So if you turn this into anything, if we go from organizations to just personal life experience, it's very important that people realize that your ability to do anything over a long period of time should not be determined on the results of the execution. It really shouldn't. It should be, you should be looking at the whole process as what's actually important. So the point you're getting at is that it is deceiving to look at an end result and essentially use inductive reasoning on how you got there because you have no clear picture 
of the fundamental building blocks that go into that end result. Yes. So it's like, it, let's say that, you know, you know, an extreme example, you're like, a you know basketball game goes down to the last second and it's won or lost on that one shot okay so you're the coach and you're trying to you lost the game and you're trying to figure out why you lost the game well somebody could easily look at it and say well you lost it because your player missed the final second shot and it's like no 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 no, no. you need it's way more complicated than that you have to look at the whole game then you have to look at how you were practicing for that team and, and all this kind of stuff so i'm saying that turning that from a basketball you know example to a real life analogy when you come up on an event in your life a moment of execution and you either fail or succeed you can never get caught up in the trap that you succeeded because of what you did specifically at that moment or you failed at what you specifically did in that moment it's really easy to when you fail to blame everything else that came before, but when you succeed to just say, that's just because I'm on fire and I just, and I just do it. And you forget about all the stuff that went into it. Like I, I find it really funny how when people fail at things, they like to point out all of the bad things that went wrong in the past. Right. That's what they like to do. They like to go right here. It went wrong here. It went wrong. She said this, she said that, and that's where it all went bad. Right. But when somebody wins or succeeds at something, then then they like to claim that it was just because at that moment they just they they knew what to do they knew what to do they completely forget all of the things that people helped them with all of the work they put into it not enough this just at that moment i'm the dude and i i just find it funny how people you know have that mental processing this stuff i don't know what you think about that but yeah it's a total um deferment of responsibility or uh, I don't know if deferment is the right word. It's like a deflecting. They when when things go wrong, when fecal matter hits the fan, <laughs> they they essentially say, "Oh, it wasn't totally my fault. Don't blame me." A, B, and C are the reasons why it wasn't totally my fault. But then everybody loves to everybody loves a success. They love to to claim it. You know, most of the time, the people that are successful over the long term are the people that are willing to say when when they're having success placed upon them to say, no, 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 that wasn't actually all me, X, Y, and Z. And, and generally, people who have that mindset generally keep being successful over the long term. But yeah, basketball is a great, great way to understand a lot of things about life. It is. It's a good analogy. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Daniel. I really appreciate this. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. But uh, everybody, thank you for listening. Have a good day. Goodbye.